Yeah, it's so different than like how music in general is produced and even like how we would listen to it because it's like I can just like open up Spotify and listen to whatever I want whenever I want and you don't have to be like some wealthy person and get the whole symphony to play for you. Cheers. Cheers. Clink. Clink. Oh, mine was late. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) Welcome to Pour Me a Mozart. My name is Asia and I'm here with my brother, Elon. And we are drinking to Old Fashioned and Haydn's Surprise Symphony, Symphony Number no. 94. So how are you today, Elon brother? Doing pretty well. Uh, it's hot. We're sitting in a heat wave. Just started today. Which... Oh, well, now I feel extra bad for making you turn off your AC. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's fine. It's usually, it's, we have an apartment that has no AC, which like sounds really bad if you live in the Midwest. Actually, if you live mostly anywhere, but we live in Redondo Beach, which is uh, one of the beach cities south of Los Angeles. It's only like 20 or so days outside of the year that it's not between like 60 and 70 degrees. So it's not that big a deal, but like the days where it is, it's kind of annoying. So speaking of you being in LA and from the Midwest, can you do your two minute personal history? For sure. So yeah, I grew up in uh, the Twin Cities with Asia. She's my sister. Uh, I went to college in, or at the U of M in Twin Cities for, I started out biology, realized uh, after OCHEM and biochemistry that it's uh, not where I want to (laughs) be. It was just a lot of memorization. (laughs) Then I switched to computer science, uh, which I love. And following that, I got a job actually pretty close to where I grew up in Blaine, working for Infinite Campus as a software engineer. Funny story, we were actually the high school that they initially tested that software on so i was like fairly familiar with it which was funny. oh yeah that's right and weren't you part of the not to interrupt your two minute history but weren't you in the band when they played at the opening yeah we played for the opening of the headquarters that i actually did end up working at yeah that's crazy uh so i worked there for i think it was close to three years and then i moved to tokyo <laughs> for about six months uh while i was there i actually made the website for ages Twin City Symphony. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Following that, moved out to California and Los Angeles, where I got a job as a software engineer at a startup for making nonprofit software called Fundraise. And that's where I've been for the last three, uh, yeah, almost three years now. I've only been out to visit you once in LA. Someday I'll do it again (laughs) Uh, because I liked it there. Yeah. It's really fun place to like especially if you're just visiting because <laughs> there's so much to do. Yeah. Uh, and when, when you visited us, we were living in Los Angeles proper, which to be fair, uh, the city of Los Angeles is actually enormous. So saying that can actually range quite a bit. We were on the West side near Marina Del Rey uh, when you visited us. And then now we're just like a little bit South of that in Redondo beach. Yeah. I'm excited to see your new place. I remember you being really happy with it yeah it's nice we're not in a a massive apartment anymore it's just a small it's like a three unit house and we're in more like a residential area so something you picked up while living in LA was surfing which I was bummed I didn't get to see you do when I was there someday I'll get to see you do it like in person but what I guess what was your initial interest in getting into surfing so growing up I like skateboarded and snowboarded and like of course 
surfing kind of follows with that. It, it is a little different, of course, but like I always loved swimming. And like whenever we went to the ocean, I always just wanted to be in the waves. Mm-hmm. And like when we first moved to California, we lived uh, literally a block and a half from the ocean. And I was like, this is the perfect time to learn surfing. So <laughs> that's what I did. Was it hard to learn? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm still like a beginner to be considered or like to be considered intermediate you should be hitting or like being able to catch and get up on like probably like 75 to 80 percent of the waves you paddle for and I'm like not even close to that yet I'm not getting out consistently enough especially now that we don't live as close mm-hmm. and like in the summer I wanted to go this morning even but like all of the places around us were just flat <laughs> there's like oh specific spots you can go where it's still good but it's like an hour and a half away and then even then it's just mega crowded so yeah uh so when you started out did you like find a teacher or something yeah so (laughs) we actually started out um sarah's sister uh sarah's my girlfriend who i live with um her sister would visit us periodically because she lived in colorado so it's pretty close flight for her uh when she visited we got some lessons I think I took two lessons or so and then like she took more and I would kind of hang out around (laughs) and yeah just practice on my own from there okay cool what has been the biggest surprise about surfing I guess just how much you learn about the ocean (laughs) even just like getting up that's only I don't know probably like 20 percent like actually standing up and controlling your surfboard there's so much you have to learn about like positioning and conditions and the different spots and like how it affects the waves and like which waves would be good and like how they're going to break all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I remember you saying something about how the bottom of the ocean can affect the wave pattern. Yeah. That's actually a really big difference between like East coast surf and West coast surf. The East coast is tends to be pretty inconsistent or like small most of the time and the reason being is like the ocean floor on the east coast is really gradual of a drop off so you can go out like maybe 50 miles and it only drops it's like 70 feet most of the way out there so like all that energy gets lost on the ocean floor but on the west coast you go like 50 or 100 feet out and it can be there's a massive drop off it becomes like thousands of feet deep all right there's a lot So where, not just in California, but like where in the world would the best surfing be? There's like a few notorious places. There's a joke with uh, surf size. So like, it's like six to eight feet in California, but Hawaii would be like, oh, it's three to four feet. Because (laughs) the the, the surf in Hawaii is like pretty consistently massive. There's an infamous spot on, I think it's the big island called Pipeline. And it's it's a reef break. So that means that there's a reef that causes the surf to break and there's always like i think it's called pipeline masters every winter they do a contest there to see who can get like the best wave of the winter those waves they can be like 15 to 20 feet on the wave the face of the wave so like as it's coming at you it's 15 feet to 20 feet tall oh my gosh (laughs) yeah the really spooky thing about that for me at least is it's a reef break so like it's coming from the deep ocean and then it hits the reef and it's suddenly just not very deep. It's only like a couple feet deep. Mm-hmm. So if you bail wrong or you get pulled, what they call, <laughs> uh, 
uh, going over the falls, if you, when it like actually breaks and you go with it, mm-hmm. it will just slam you right into that reef. So it can be pretty dangerous. Not good, right? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Th- there are like shore breaks like that too, where it'll just slam you into the sand too. But mm-hmm. I tend to stay away from those because I am not uh, confident enough to not do that. Well, thank you for doing that. I don't want you to die. Same. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we're on the same page about that. Yeah. So you mentioned you lived in Tokyo for six months. Mm-hmm. How did you end up out there? I mean, I know, <laughs> but the listeners don't know. Sure. So uh, the girl I was dating in college, Sarah, I'm still with her. She was a Japanese major and studied abroad there and got an internship with a video game company doing localization. Uh, they're called 8-4. And then following graduating, she actually got a full-time job there. And then, yeah, I moved out there to be with her. <laughs> Yeah. I remember the whole process and like being a little upset that you're going to be really far away, um, but also being really excited to go visit you in Japan, which didn't end up happening, but maybe sometime we can go. Yeah, I definitely want to go back. It's Japan's a really cool place. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that really like stood out to me was just how considerate people are in public, like especially coming from America. It's yeah. wild. Like no, there's like hardly any trash cans in the city of Tokyo, but you don't see trash around. Just people bring it with them and throw it away. Interesting. Yeah, I went really on a cool. walk to the grocery store today and saw like a whole bunch of trash on the ground. It's just like, yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah, it's really, really disappointing. But yeah, it's wild how uh, clean of a city Tokyo is for how big it is. Yeah, you wouldn't think that, but you know. It's nice to have a respectful culture, I guess. Mm-hmm. We could definitely learn a few things. For sure. <laughs> what is your Hogwarts house? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Gryffindor. I haven't checked in a long time. That would make sense. What is, ooh, actually, before we go into food and drink, can you talk a little bit about your past musical experience? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I grew up with... Uh, Asia and her family. <laughs> so of also course your family. Well, sure, but I mean they don't know me, they know you. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about our mom and dad still. I was like, I'm so confused. I mean I am. They're also my family. But just to give some context to the listeners. Uh <laughs> so it was a very musical household. I'm pretty sure I started playing violin when I was like I think I was also four. I know you started when you were four. And then I also a little younger. Yeah, that may have been. I think it was largely because Asia was doing it, and I was like, I wanted to be included, Mm -hmm. but uh, it didn't stick. I don't know. (laughs) I didn't really like it that much, but I did eventually start playing bass guitar. Man, I don't remember when I started playing. I think I might have been ten. You were definitely still in elementary school. Yeah, it was in elementary school when I started, and then I played that through. So my dad helped teach me with that. And then I did take some uh, professional lessons too. Oh, with Pill Killer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I played bass through up until high school. Uh, middle school, I started playing saxophone when we had band in school. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I played tenor sax throughout uh, from middle school all the way out through high school. And then following high school, I, I don't know, I didn't really continue. School started taking over and all that stuff, so just didn't mm-hmm. have Yeah. Have you ever thought about like picking up either the bass or saxophone again? 
Yeah, because a lot of the music I like, I would probably do bass if anything, because <laughs> a lot of the music I like uh, is more like electric guitar, drums, bass kind of thing. So, true. Saxophone is pretty cool. I don't know. <laughs> I I've considered it. I feel like once one of the big things is I haven't lived in the same place for more than a year. That's true. I moved out for high school so i feel oh, like since I'll, high school really yeah uh i guess i lived two years at home yeah a lot of moving so Hopefully that's kind of where we're, we're at now yeah exactly we're trying to figure out a place where we can like actually buy a house and then not move <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i hope that happens for you very soon same I, I think so we're getting there we're at the uh wealth building portion of our lives Nice. I wish I was at the wealth building portion of my life. Yeah. I mean, being a software engineer feels like cheating. It was not that hard to find a good paying job. So uh, all you kids out there, if you're, if you're starting up school and you like computers, do computer science. Yeah. Word to the wise. Word from the wise. <laughs> I don't know about wise. <laughs> but it worked for me. <laughs> Uh, what is your favorite snack? Favorite snack. Or meal. Well, meal that I really want to have again, and I haven't in a while, is uh, Japanese curry, or katsu curry specifically. So it's like, it's breaded pork or chicken. The pork is, I think, better, but they're both good. It's not as spicy. It's definitely a sweeter curry, but then it's just like, it's on this breaded pork cutlet with curry and rice. It's really good. It's like one full cutlet, not like chopped up yeah so it's like one pork chop that's like sliced longwise can you say what that was called again katsu curry so it's katsu curry k-a-t-s-u okay curry cool what is your go-to drink so every day i drink uh way too much Lacroix. i probably it's it's only a problem before when i was actually working in an office we had like a refrigerator full of it and now I really got an idea of how many I drank in a day because I have to buy it all. <laughs> but I probably have like three or four a day. <laughs> if you don't know what LaCroix is, it's just uh, flavored carbonated water. Mm-hmm. But for alcoholic drinks, it's uh, just a regular old IPA, whatever the local is. That's what I like to do when I visit places in the U.S. especially. Uh, it's just order whatever the local brewery is. Mm-hmm. So what would you, what's your favorite one in California? Uh, Ballast Point. I think they're based in San Diego, but I know they have some uh, breweries in Long Beach too. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've heard of them. I can't remember if I've had any of their beer, but I've definitely seen it on tap. If you had, it would probably be the Sculpin. Oh, yep. That's their, yep, the angry looking fish. So what we are drinking now, I think for spirits, your go-to is whiskey, right? Is that yes. still true? Yes. That is true. But I don't typically drink it. <laughs> yeah, I don't typically drink whiskey either, but it's also not my go-to spirit. <laughs> so the whiskey old-fashioned, this drink was old-fashioned way back in 1895 when uh, Kepler called it the old-fashioned whiskey cocktail in his book, Modern American Drinks, how to mix and serve all kinds of cups and drinks. He made the drink by dissolving a lump of sugar with a little water, then adding two dashes of Angostura bitters, a small piece of ice, lemon peel, and um, they say a jigger of whiskey. So a jigger is that like conical measuring thing that you'll see at a bar. Oh, okay. So 
I'm assuming that means one ounce. I don't know. The recipes I found and what I used was two ounces. So it could be two ounces also. It could be two or maybe it's one. I don't know. Yeah. A a typical jigger is one ounce on one side and a half ounce on the other. I see. It could also mean an ounce and a half. So it's like one full thing of it. One full jigger. (laughs) One full jigger. Seven years prior to that, Harry Johnson had made a similar drink with the addition of a couple dashes of curacao, which is, um, I don't actually know what curacao is, but that blue liqueur that you see that makes drinks turn blue is blue curacao. And I've never had a blue curacao that tastes good. It actually turns everything into garbage. It looks really cool. Don't recommend. His recipe was titled the whiskey cocktail. So presumably presumably those seven years seemed like a generation to Kepler. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) I might cut that. The old fashioned can be a controversial drink on more than one front. Some bartenders add a splash of club soda, either before muddling or after mixing the drink and others will add a little water. Neither of these ingredients should be in there. As far as I'm concerned, by the way, I'm reading out of Gary Regan's book, the joy of mixology. He's the guy who did um, that bar takeover show. I forget what it's called. It's in the book somewhere, but he had like a reality show where he'd like fix bars. But the thing that really raises the hackles of many cocktailians is the question of fruit. Is it correct to muddle, say, a slice of orange and maraschino cherry with the bitters and sugar before adding the ice and whiskey? Historically, this is not the prescribed method. And, you know, basically, the thing you need to know about really any cocktail is you can kind of do it however you want. There might be like a more standard recipe and Every bartender might have their own little twist on it. Or if they're like a corporate bar, say like Olive Garden Applebee's, they'll have a recipe that they have to follow very specifically. But everything's going to be a little bit different. Yeah, I kind of got that impression when I was looking up recipes for it. I'm like, none of these are all that accurate and they're all very different. So I was like, all right, I'll just kind of throw some of this in there. (laughs) Yeah, the best part about bartending at home is you get to make it to your own taste. So I think both of us made what is known as the Wisconsin Old Fashioned, right? Correct. I didn't use a fresh orange because I'm lazy. I just had orange bitters. And then I I had a, I did have an actual cherry though. (laughs) Nice. That looks like a brandied cherry. Yeah. uh, Candied, but yeah. Candied? Yeah. Okay. Nice. I have only ever used maraschino cherries, which when I worked at a bar, everyone was like, those are garbage. I'm like, but they taste good. (laughs) Like I like them. You like So I'm sure a brandied cherry would be delicious in this drink, but that's not what I had. So the Wisconsin Old Fashioned, you muddle a cherry, orange, and I used a sugar cube just because I found some (laughs) in my pantry. I was like, I want to use this. But you can also use a dash of simple syrup. And then it's in Wisconsin that you'll use uh, soda water, like a little bit of it just to kind of break down, like especially if you use a sugar cube to break down the sugar a little bit. Sure. So it's easier to muddle. But... The main difference between that and the standard old-fashioned is the Wisconsin old-fashioned is much sweeter. Yeah, I I did like it. It still tasted like fairly whiskey-like. Like it's not a particularly sweet drink, but I didn't use a ton of... I used simple syrup and then the orange bitters and my cherry. But yeah, it was still like more whiskey-like than sweet, I would say. Yeah, and well, you also put Angostura bitters in, right? Uh, yes, I put bitters in. I don't know if they were Angostura, but... I saw in the picture you sent me, there were Angostura bitters. Okay, cool. I'm glad you read it. (laughs) But were they orange bitters? Yeah, there was orange in the bitters. Oh, okay. So Angostura bitters is like 
just a collection of herbs that it's one of the more common bitters you'll find behind the bar and Peychaud's is the other and they have other brand or other flavors too so there's like plain Angostura bitters and that's the more common one but the standard recipe I haven't found this in any of the books that I've read but a bar manager once told me that there was no muddling involved at all in the original old-fashioned and I was like oh okay I think it's just whiskey bitters ice stir drink that sure but (laughs) actually in this book there's whiskey old-fashioned and then whiskey old-fashioned fruit style (laughs) also known as wisconsin at least in our case yeah um and wisconsin also sometimes uses brandy instead of whiskey which would make it even sweeter oh okay so is that the difference between brandy and whiskey well brandy is like a type of whiskey right i oh my gosh i should know this i can't remember i think it's actually a fortified wine oh okay wine than whiskey sure because there's what's the one that it's it's only in kentucky bourbon right bourbon is basically just whiskey but it has to be uh, barreled in kentucky yes cool yeah i know some things (laughs) yeah um so you can use bourbon or rye whiskey or brandy if you're in wisconsin and it's one sugar cube three dashes angostura bitters or sometimes called Ango Bitters for short, because you have to shorten everything behind the bar. One yes. maraschino cherry, one half wheel orange, and then, ooh, this says three ounces bourbon or straight rye whiskey. That's when you're going hard. <laughs> That's when you're going hard. We're not going that hard. Um, and then you muddle the sugar, bitters, cherry, and orange, and then add the ice and the whiskey. And like the book said earlier, there's, I mean, even controversy about how much you add and and when you add things yeah just do what you want <laughs> just do what you want really you can even make this with all different ingredients and still call it an old-fashioned i suppose if you so wanted to might up- upset some people but yeah <laughs> so in any case we're drinking old fashions because the music we're going to listen to is quite old-fashioned and i mean all of this has been but i specifically wanted to pair Haydn with the old fashioned because he is known as both the father of the string quartet and the father of the symphony. So he's really like what made my career what it is because no one was really writing in this same way. So Haydn lived actually a pretty long life. Um, he was born on March 31st, 1732 and died May 31st, 1809. So that's almost 80 years. Uh, he was an Austrian composer and had a gigantic influence on classical music as it is today. Yeah, I mean, I said he's known as the father of the symphony and the father of the string quartet. Yeah, it's a pretty big, uh, pretty big influence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he had two babies, the symphony and the yeah. string quartet. On Wikipedia, it said his nickname is Papa, which <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> I will never call him Papa. Yeah, does it really count as a nickname if nobody actually calls him that? I don't know. And I wonder if he was called that during his lifetime or if that was like what we call him now. Because, you know, these people who are revolutionizing forms of anything, can you... I feel like I'm hearing Dexter purr through my headphones. Can you hear him? No. Oh, <laughs> okay. He's cuddled up right next to me napping and purring. Cute. Very cute. Um, but yeah, I'm sure he had no idea that he was revolutionizing this form that would last for, you know at least 300 more years, which is pretty insane to think about. Haydn's early symphonic... Oh, I'm now reading from a book called The Symphony, 
by Preston Studman. It's a book I got in grad school. Yay. <laughs> Haydn's early symphonic output began in the pre-classical period and extended in 10 years to include almost 30 symphonies, which is kind of nuts. That's a lot. Have you heard about the Nine Symphony Curse? Uh, no, but I feel like I know what it is just from the name. <laughs> what do you think it is? Uh, once you hit nine, they're not good anymore or not popular. Oh, no, you die. Oh, well, that's even worse. <laughs> I mean, it, I guess it holds, right? You just don't make it anymore. Yeah, so there have been, this started with Beethoven. And actually, in a couple weeks, the finale of season two is going to be the finale of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. The premiere for this season was the first three movements of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is kind of the pinnacle of symphonic works. Obviously, don't need to talk about it in depth now. But Beethoven died shortly after the Ninth Symphony, or didn't write more symphonies after that. But since then, like Brahms only wrote four symphonies, Mahler wrote nine, and then had a tenth that was unfinished. Uh, Schubert didn't write more. I can't remember everyone's numbers off the top of my head. Tchaikovsky has maybe only six or seven. Nine is like, about the max, though. Nine is about the max, but also um, symphonies and Haydn's and Mozart's time. Like, Mozart has an insane number of symphonies. But, you know, Mozart was Mozart and just, like, I don't know. Slammed him out. He <laughs> just slammed him out. But Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is like 90 minutes on its own and this entire symphony we're going to talk about is 24 minutes so the form got much longer and maybe that's an exaggeration it's but it's over an hour for sure Beethoven's sure. Ninth Symphony is over an hour and like Mahler there are entire movements of Mahler symphonies that are longer than this whole surprise symphony yeah I, I listened to it beforehand and I was like oh it's only like 24 minutes I think 23 or something like that mm -hmm. depends on the performance but yeah somewhere around there yeah yeah which seemed pretty short <laughs> compared to more modern symphonies yeah but it was actually pretty long for the time I read one of the reviews this comes from Wikipedia where someone called it an overture so at this time there were overtures before operas and that's where you'd get the musical themes and the orchestra would have a chance to shine on its own. And they were even calling his symphonies overtures at the time. This symphony was written in 1791. It was the second of 12 symphonies that he was commissioned to write while he was in London. So this, along with 11 other symphonies, is known as one of the London symphonies. This comes from A History of Western Music by, at this time, it was just Grout. This is one of mom's. <laughs> music history books. <laughs> I used the same book when I was in undergrad, but it was, there were two more authors added to it. And I think now there's maybe a fourth. In any case, um, Haydn, like most composers of his time, usually wrote his music to order for specific occasion, specific occasions and for players and singers whom he knew. When he accepted a commission for a work to be performed elsewhere than at Esterhaza, he worked for, I think that was a prince. Um, he was always careful to inform himself as fully as possible of the circumstances under which it would be produced and to adapt the music to those circumstances to the best of his ability. So, I mean, I guess this is really similar to composers now. Like, they write things when they get grant money to write things or, you know, for a specific person. So I guess nothing's really changed there. Yeah, at least as far as symphony goes. I thought it was interesting how he 
specifically worked for one wealthy, I think it was a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. And like, that's so... Esterhazy family. Yeah, it's so different than like how music, well, how music in general is produced. And even like how we would listen to it. Because it's like, I can just like open up Spotify and listen to whatever I want, mm-hmm. whenever I want. And you don't have to be like some wealthy person and get a whole symphony to play for you. That's very true. It's so much more accessible now. And actually back in the day, I mean, obviously the music wasn't recorded because they didn't have a way to do it, but they also wouldn't perform symphonies again. It was only like within the past maybe 150 years that that started happening. Like people, there's, this is another thing I should just know off the top of my head, but there's another very famous composer might have been Mahler, might have been Wagner, but if it wasn't for that composer, we wouldn't listen to the music of Bach or Mozart or maybe even Beethoven. I'm not 100% sure about that. But sometimes, um, like later on last week's episode, I talked about Berlioz' Herald in Italy, and that was performed on multiple occasions, but that was kind of a rarity back in Haydn's time. Interesting. And when you say like, performed once do you mean literally only one time rather than like one season or anything that has always been my understanding that's wild yeah so Haydn working for this family was like they were like we need a new symphony for the weekend yeah for real or whatever it's not that's a lot of work like it's a lot of musicians that have to learn it it's like you have to write a lot of parts too yeah well symphony or symphonic writing was also very different during that time it was really only the violinists that had something really demanding to do that's true i did notice that when i was listening to it before yeah i have a couple excerpts where it's like i mean i think that stuff is fun to play so i'm like ooh, like i kind of want to learn this i've never uh, i've never played this piece i've played a few haydn symphonies though i can't remember which <laughs> at the time or, it's hard to remember when they, their name is just like number nine you're like okay <laughs> i mean you're totally right but i have friends who are just like oh symphony number eight opus 76 and i'm just like who are you you're like which one i don't know <laughs> how does that go again and they're like oh let me tell you that like good on you i just need you yeah. around all the time <laughs> but yeah there are people that that are like that so the premiere of this piece was in Hanover Square Rooms in London on March 23rd, 1792, so a year after it was written. And when I was looking for the excerpts, I pulled up the score, which for those of you who don't know, the score is what the conductor looks at that has what each instrument plays at all times. Um, So I looked up the score on this website called IMSLP, and I was following along, and I noticed there's a piano part at the bottom, and I was like, oh, that's weird. That's not something, like, you don't hear a piano in the orchestra. But then I read on Wikipedia, yay Wikipedia, that Haydn led the orchestra from the forte piano, which is a slightly different instrument from the modern piano. But I guess, you know, he was playing the piano along with the orchestra while they played his symphony, which, you know, leading the orchestra is a separate job in and of itself. That's the conductor now. And if there's a Wait, piano... Wait, so he, did, did he both lead the orchestra and play the piano? I think so. So he probably sat in front and like played the piano with and like nodded at people or something. Sure, yeah, that sounds like a pretty big job. Yeah, so just a brief like orchestra thing. The first chair violinist is called the concertmaster. So this is kind of the evolution of the ranking within the orchestra. The concertmaster used to be responsible for leading the orchestra because just where they sit, everyone can see them. 
and um, it makes sense for the strings to be up front because the winds and brass can cut across all of that, but it's harder for, it just works out better acoustically. But then also we have our bows, which is convenient to like wave this little stick at people, which I think is where, I don't know this for sure, but I'm theorizing that that's where the conductor's baton comes from. Sure. It's a little easier to wield than <laughs> the bow too. Probably. It exaggerates your motions too. Yeah. And you'd be, oh man, you'd be surprised how much technique is in using the baton and like how easy or not easy a conductor is to read depending oh, on Oh, I technique. definitely know that. I, uh, I played in band throughout middle school and high school. So there's definitely a, you can definitely tell a difference <laughs> when you have like multiple conductors. Yes. Yeah. And I've worked a lot with a lot of student conductors also. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's a lot harder than it looks. Yeah, I had to take a conducting class, and that's when I was like, nope, actually, this is not at all what I want to do. I hate this. <laughs> so in any case, why don't we start listening to this thing? I have a story when we get to the part where we talk about why it's called the Surprise Symphony, but that actually doesn't happen in the first movement, and I got really excited in the first movement. I have, oops, five excerpts to share. <laughs> Some of them are kind of long, but I, I think it's important, and I also think... A lot of people can think that Haydn's music is really boring because it's old. And what I would like to prove here is that it's, you know, he was breaking boundaries, even though he was making symphonies before anyone else did. But he was breaking boundaries in other ways, too. Yeah. It's a lot harder when you don't have anything to build off of. Yeah. So the first movement is the longest movement. It's about nine minutes long. And it's Adagio Vivace Assai which means adagio is slow, so it starts slow, which is very common uh, at this time to have a slow introduction and then the rest of the movement is fast. So this is from the slow introduction. Uh, what I liked about it is that there's lots of drama. I mean, that's why I like music, there's lots of drama. But the sustained low end on the instruments was especially uncommon for that time. So take a listen to the lower end of the orchestra. bit like early Beethoven what did you think about it it is interesting that like even back then it was rare for like the low end of the orchestra to be more featured and uh given what I played both bass guitar and <laughs> sax yeah definitely still used to that it's like it's pretty common for the lower end to be like less featured which is kind of funny given that like a lot of popular music this like in the modern era that's just being produced now, it's so focused on like a bass drum beat mm -hmm. as like the only real instrument. But before it was like, well, it's kind of there, but it's mostly just to keep everybody on the same page. Yeah, and to keep your ear attached to whatever key this is supposed to be in. It's more mm -hmm. like an anchor than anything exciting. But I think that would be pretty exciting to play if you're a cellist. Mm-hmm. The next clip is, 
I need to be more descriptive in my notes, but this says violins, then full orchestra. But <laughs> from what I remember, I did this like only a few hours ago and I already don't remember. But this, I believe, is the beginning of the vivace. something's happening there yeah for sure well and like it's interesting that it both starts with the violins and then builds into everything more like more volume more and then it just fades back into the violins as well Mm -hmm. yeah i think after that the phrase repeats itself with the full orchestra again and there's a whole bunch of different variations on it but yeah it was very violin heavy and actually i've been to a few chamber music camps where you I say a few. I went to one chamber music camp where you um, you had to play a Haydn quartet before you could play anything else because it's like, I mean, he's the father of the string quartet. And a lot of the music is quite simple, but some of it is actually really exciting. And it, that gets lost if you're just kind of casually listening to it, I think. I don't know. It, Maybe it was just too young. Well, and I think part of the excitement from it too is that like, at the beginning, it's just one part of the group. And then in the middle, it builds to all of them. And then it drops back down to just one. So it's like the the absence of some of the instruments can add to the interest of the piece. Yeah, totally. The next clip is the violins and flutes in unison. And I just thought the way that they paired together was really, really cool. Yeah, I like how it's like they kind of start together and then one of them just keeps going with the idea. Oh, yeah, like the violins. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's always the violins. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the next part is there's a moment in a minor key. And what I think is so cool about switching to minor is you can use the same melody and change just one note and suddenly it has a completely different mood. So here's that and... Haydn's little drama-rama moment. After that it goes back to a major key yeah i can definitely because those first few excerpts it all feels like kind of lighthearted and, and like more of a happy tone and then what's one one note different right in the key mm-hmm. and it's like there's just a lot more tension mm-hmm. yeah it's great i remember working in piano class in undergrad and like going through all the hand positions and what chords you can play and how to do that and like make an actual chord progression I remember a friend of mine made that comment, like you can change one note and totally change everything. And I was like, yeah. And it's like, it's something that's so special that I don't think any reaction is quite enough 
for it. Yeah, I mean, it's wild how it's just like, it's only one note and it feels completely different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or just the fact that any collection of notes can make you feel anything. Mm -hmm. So this last part from the first movement is just like really groovy in the low strings. And I picked it because this is one of those spots that I thought sounds really fun to play. probably really hard to play but it sounds really yeah. fun <laughs> i was feeling it you can really yeah. tell that the low strings actually had uh, something to do than that part probably yeah. that would be like my favorite portion of the the symphony probably be like oh, yes this is the fun part you get to do the groove yeah yeah so on to the second movement the second movement is actually where the symphony gets its name which is a little uncommon because usually it's one of the outer movements that gives something its name. I guess that's not entirely true. Death and the Maiden string quartet, which I did in season one. Second movement is also the reason it's called that. But anyway, so this is Andante. It's a little under six minutes long. And okay, story time. <laughs> so I remember being in youth orchestra in middle school, MYS, and Minnesota Youth Symphonies for all my non- Minnesotan listeners. Hey, France. The St. Paul Chamber Orchestra was going to play this piece. And I remember the conductor saying, like, you should see it. It's called the Surprise Symphony. It's really great. Haydn is an amazing composer. And I'm going to give away the surprise that happens at the end. And what I was told was the surprise is the musicians get up and start leaving the stage. And that's not why it's called the Surprise Symphony. And I just feel lied to. <laughs> Because, I mean, maybe they did that in that performance, but I kind of doubt it. But yeah, I just feel lied to. So the reason it's called the Surprise Symphony is because this is the slow movement. And it actually doesn't feel that slow. It's dun, 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 dun. So there's kind of a slow bounce to it. A lot of slow movements are actually much slower with less rhythmic activity. Mm -hmm. But there is a big... Um, accent on a weak beat. So usually if you put an accent, you know, it's going to be on like dun, 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 like one or three, which is <laughs> like when you clap with a, a band, if you're going to like clap along. Yeah. Uh, if clap. it's four, four. <laughs> if it's four, four. Yes. <laughs> which most pop songs are in four, four. Um, but yeah, so you want to clap with the strong beats and this has a weak beat emphasized, which um, I read somewhere, probably Wikipedia, let's be honest, was Haydn wanting to wake up the audience. So pay attention, listeners. <laughs> Don't wake up. Catch you by surprise.
I think it's funny that people thought it was just to wake up the audience, but I think that also kind of places it in history, right? Because it's like, well, why did he put it in there? And it's like, he was just trying new things mm-hmm. versus like having a real reason to have sudden increase in volume. Yeah, he might have just been playing around. But I also read somewhere that that wasn't in the original score. So I don't know if it was added later by Haydn or if someone... It seems to me like Surprise was a nickname that was given to it by Haydn or at least during his lifetime. So I would assume he heard it played this way, even if it wasn't originally part of the score. Sure. It'd be interesting if like the symphony that initially played it or something along those lines were the ones who did it. And then he's like, oh time to surprise the audience (laughs) (laughs) i mean honestly i've i've worked with some new music and had the composer there and sometimes you give them ideas like actually i think this might be better and usually they're like yeah i do like that better let's change that i feel like that's important for a lot of things uh not necessarily well it can be music related but like for video games too like whenever you're iterating on creating a game it's like it's it can be really important to listen to what your players are saying yeah for sure because, I mean, that's why you, well, I guess it's the players are more important for a video game than for music because it's ultimately the listener. <laughs> but Well, sure. I mean, it's kind of similar though, right? Because it's like yeah. the musician interacts with the music that you write and like for video games, the player interacts with the thing that you're creating. Yeah, I suppose. Like it needs to be fun to actually do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so the I realized I went kind of overboard with the, First movement, so I only have two excerpts from the other three movements. So this is a spot where, again, we have a minor key in the second movement. And how quickly it can change back to major. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there was no subtlety in that surprise weak beat anymore. It was just very forceful and strong and then adorable. <laughs> so the third movement is a minuet, which is very common in, uh, well, all symphonies, really. The third movement is typically a minuet and trio. So it's now in three instead of four because the minuet is a dance in three. And it's about five minutes long. I'll just play the beginning and then the trio theme. So... The opening, I think, is a little bit reminiscent of that surprise where you da 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 da. So, listen and see if you can hear what I hear too. I feel like I was hearing it more in the low strings, but it was definitely in there. Yeah, it does actually happen on beat one, but. Sure. Well, and when you said that, uh, a minuet is typically in three. Is that something that Hayden kind of started? Or was it since, I mean, it seems like he was one of the first ones to write symphonies in this way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of composers were writing dance music, not as part of a symphony. I don't know actually why the minuet became such a staple in the symphony, but there typically is a movement in three. And it's the minuet wasn't his original form by any means. Because sure. it's for like dance parties. You know how we like go to the club now? Yeah, that was their their club music. Was, that was the minuet club music? Yeah, <laughs> that was their cupid shuffle. Was the minuet? <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. So the trio theme is coming up. I think I didn't choose the beginning of the trio, and I can't remember why. 
but maybe that was I don't know I'm just gonna play it and then see why I picked it I really liked how the uh, low strings are kind of accenting the part that the violins are playing. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I also liked the spaces. Like sometimes on beat three, there just wouldn't be anything, which mm-hmm. I think is cool. I think, I mean, I've talked about this on other episodes, but in The Last Jedi, Star Wars, you've seen that now, right? <sighs> no, I need to. I think yeah. it's on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> They're all on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> I'll have to get to that. I got plenty of time now. Yeah, there is a moment of silence in that film that people were frustrated by, but I thought was extremely impactful. I'm not going to ruin it for you because it's really cool. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have seen that one. I'm thinking of, wait, what's the the most recent one? Or the ninth one, yeah. Uh, Rise of Skywalker. That's the one that I haven't seen. Yes, I do remember that silence. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was really cool. On that note, I kind of really appreciate that they did that because uh, there is no sound in space. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, Star Trek would have you thinking otherwise with the Exactly. Well, I mean, with the same with the ion engines and the pew pew in Star Wars. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Most of the time, there's sound in Star Wars space. Yeah, that's true. The fourth movement is the shortest movement. It is Allegro di Molto. And I'm just going to play the beginning of it. continues on and on and on (laughs) Uh, something i wanted to bring up about just this whole time period in general is i saw on wikipedia that you know where they have the c also it was the evolution of the timpani in 18th and 19th century music and you know now the timpani is a very complex instrument where you can tune it very quickly and you know quietly in the back of an orchestra Mm-hmm. But back in this time, there were only two drums, and you could you could change the pitch, but you couldn't do it like while the orchestra was playing. So you were kind of stuck playing one and five, tonic and dominant, soul, and oh nope, do and soul, do re mi fa so. Yep. <laughs> anyway, the the two most important notes in any key. What I didn't know about that is that. The trumpets often doubled the timpani parts. Oh, interesting. Was that only during this time that they did that? Yeah. But also, trumpets didn't have the three valves at this time like they do now. They were just natural horns. They were straight. So you had to use your air to change the pitch, but you could only use the same harmonic series as probably what the drums were tuned to. And um, those same notes were the ones that would sound the best because as you get higher up in the harmonic series, they're more out of tune, uh, less tone quality, all that stuff. Yeah, way harder to hold it. I know I'm, I know you know how that, you played trumpet. <laughs> I did. I'm a recovered trumpet player. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I remember writing down the excerpts in the fourth movement and being like, I'll remember what they are, but of course I don't. So <laughs> <laughs> you, 
here's the last excerpt from this symphony, and I guess I will talk about it after. <laughs> can hear the violins are very busy at the end and then continue <laughs> in that busyness yep but there's excitement for the cellos there too yeah i could i could hear the the flutes as well oh yeah yeah the flute was another instrument that early on had a lot of activity <laughs> yeah that's haydn's surprise symphony uh surprise the musicians don't leave the stage at the end of the piece that would be ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> but there's a surprise like wake up sort of moment so i guess that's, I probably have more to share about Haydn, but did you have anything to say more about listening to this for the first time? Yeah, it was really interesting hearing it because it's like, it wasn't the most complex, but I think that's just a relic of its time, mm -hmm. which now having you explain like how instruments were maybe less complex at that time, that makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the the whole low-end instruments not having a lot to do is because the technique hadn't been developed, but also it takes a lot more for a low sound to sound than for a high sound. So it was just easier to make things happen on the violin than it is on the cello. And having played both instruments, like it just it is easier to get a sound and move around quickly on the violin than it is on the cello. And That checks out because I, I remember the times that I would play uh, baritone sax. <laughs> mm -hmm. requires so much more air than even just a tenor sax, which is like, and then again, even less for like the alto. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a couple flute player friends who mentioned there's also like the regular flute and then there's the tiny little piccolo, but there's also an alto and a tenor flute. And one mm -hmm. of them talked about playing the tenor flute and how it's like blowing over a barge. <laughs> yeah, it takes so much more air for those low yeah. wind instruments yeah before i ask you your final question would you like to plug any of your social media or social media for your job uh yeah not me but for <laughs> <laughs> don't look me up uh but for fundraise uh we we are a platform for online fundraising for nonprofits. so if that sounds uh like something that could be useful for you uh, hey, check yeah. us out. <laughs> yeah, check us out at uh, fundraise.org, which is it's F U N raise. Like fundraising, but it's fun. Exactly. Yes. Uh, if you would like to connect more with Pour Me a Mozart, we are on Instagram and Facebook, both at Pour Me a Mozart. You can subscribe on Spotify, iTunes. I don't know how Google Play works. Maybe you can subscribe there. Yeah, anyway, uh, leave a rating, write a review. I love reading those. Um, you can also leave comments and messages on the Instagram page, Facebook page too. I'm not as uh, active on <laughs> that page, but someday, someday I'll update it. Free ways to support the podcast are, you know, subscribing, interacting, sharing posts. Um, you can also share the podcast with a friend if you enjoyed this episode. Um, share this one, or you can share or listen to a different episode if you tuned in just to hear a little bit about Haydn and what is a surprise symphony, or if you tuned in to hear Elon. Um, I have other fantastic guests and other fantastic pieces that have been covered. 
thus far. Um, oh, yes, if you want to actually give the podcast money, thank you. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash pour me a Mozart and become a Patreon member for $3 a month. That will, at the moment, get you a lovely magnet to put on your fridge. <laughs> Elon, your final question. What is your quarantine advice? All right. So a uh, couple things. So for me, I've been working from home, and as I imagine many people who are lucky enough to be able to. Um, and this has been kind of a recurring theme for my industry as is since we have had work from home a lot a lot of people in the software industry have been able to work from home and i think probably like basically my whole team started out remote before this and then now i'm just also remote uh, but one important thing to do is take time for yourself like it's important to only work like a set amount of time during the day and then be able to relax and now still you should be able to take like time off and just even if you don't go anywhere or if you just go visit some places that maybe are close to you that are in nature or whatnot, it's Definitely important to go outside. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's another thing too. Uh, get outside every day if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, try to maintain relationships with your friends and family online. For me, it was, I'm, I'm lucky in that I already had this practice prior to quarantine. Uh, a lot of my friends are out of state to begin with and we, pretty frequently play video games online, talk to each other. And then I still regularly talk to my family in Minnesota over uh, Zoom. Yeah, (laughs) like we are now. (laughs) Like we are now. Only it's being recorded to be distributed, you know, worldwide. Exactly. (laughs) Cheers to to that. Definitely getting, getting outside, taking time for yourself during the day or even like taking a couple days off of work in general it's super important thank you for being on the podcast yeah for sure it was fun good to see you too yeah um and thank you to all the listeners who have listened and yeah thanks for tuning in thanks for being here cheers cheers clink clink